0: Section 34 of Heroines of Fiction by William Dean Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. William Black's Gertrude White. In my sense of at least partial defeat by the heroines of Mister Hardy, who have suffered me to represent them mainly in some of their lighter moments i am sufficiently humiliated to make a confession that i would rather not have made i confess that i never read a novel of blackmore's or a novel of stevenson's or more than one novel of mr george meredith's and though i might qualify myself to speak of their heroines by taking a course of their fiction i am afraid that my appreciation would have a perfunctory look out of keeping with the prevailing complexion of these studies i might learn what those ladies were like but i should have no associations with them from the past no remembered passion and if it is not now too late with me to form a passion for a new heroine it would not be perhaps becoming i in the case of stevenson i am hardly a great loser i fancy unless i am wrong in supposing his romances are mostly stories of adventure such as the heroine does not best develop in as i have before intimated she cannot make her peculiar powers felt in the highest degree by the hero who is saving her life or defending her honour she requires the safety and quiet of normal conditions for the last effect of her charm which is the translation of everyday life into a supernal ecstasy i dare say i could not make so good my defence in the case of blackmore for lorna doone is a heroine whose adorers simply troop at her heels i can only regret that i have not her acquaintance and sigh that it seems too late to make it as for mr george meredith's heroines my experience is confined to such of them as may be met in beauchamp's career and from that i have no recollection of them by name i was barely fifty when i read the book but one begins to forget names so early i do however have the impression that they talked a great deal as mr meredith writes though they shared this foible with all the other characters and i could not greatly blame them since his writing gave me the sense of a singularly powerful mind and generous spirit i thought beauchamp's career a magnificent piece of intellectuation fused through and through by electrical emotion but i could not get farther with the author though i tried one novel of his after another as one votary of his after another solemnly promised me conversion in the interest of my soul's salvation I remained, and I still remain, unable to reconcile my aesthetics with his, though I uncover to his ethics as I know them in Beauchamp's career. He appears to me a powerful, willful talent, who could have flourished into critical acceptance as a novelist, only in an atmosphere of such aesthetic anarchy as wraps the British Isles, but he may some day appear differently to me through my greater knowledge of him. This has happened to me with Mr. George Moore, whom I long shied off from, because I fancied him doing over again, from the Realistic Formula, the work of M. Zola. M. Zola seemed doing it so fully that I thought myself in no need of Mr. George Moore. But his Esther Waters showed me how mistaken I was. That is a great book, and if it had not appeared in an age which has been spoiled by great fictions, it would have been prized as one of the greatest i know that it won celebrity of even the popular sort and that it received critical recognition but it has not achieved the lasting credit which is its due its very merits forbid me to study it here for the sad plain naked truth about life is apt to shock or to make people think they are shocked and in its facts it is sometimes outside of those decorums of anglo-saxon fiction which i have been treating as the decencies so is the very powerful group of studies which the author calls the celibates and which the mere name of brings back my strong emotion in reading them the three differing types of the womanly presented there are of that novelty and reality in which life abounds but which we suppose exhausted because fiction like history so commonly repeats itself mr moore's fiction is not like history in this and it is probably more like memoir pour servir than like history in its way of dealing with the unupholstered human soul but i am aware that the upholstered soul is more presentable to mixed companies especially when there are young people present and so i leave this author's heroines out of my series though i cannot leave them out of my mind and i wish to make my manners to what i think their prodigious veracity two there is no such embarrassment as i have here hastened to escape in dealing with the heroines of william black who are quite of the anglo-saxon tradition they are nice girls even when they are naughty as some of them are or at least they do not misbehave beyond the bounds of convention they flirt but unless flirtation is a sin they do not sin and they are not sinned against very direly they began rather simply and naturally in the course of a journey in a phaeton whose strange adventures once pleased so greatly and they almost ended and rather insipidly in the voyage of a houseboat the two novels indicated will occur to most readers whose novel reading extended from eighteen seventy to eighteen ninety but in the interval there were other novels of blacks which signalized his deeper knowledge of human and of woman nature and his growing dramatic power this power was apt at times to disperse itself in the sobs and tears of hysterical emotion but there is no doubt that short of such climaxes it was a power it relaxed rather too often in the description of natural scenery and killed too many salmon and quoted too much gaelic but still it was power in such a story as madcap violet it triumphed in character then new to fiction and of interesting actuality in life and in macleod of dare it went deeper and came up with stronger contrasts to truly tragical purpose but cloud of dare seems to have been the highest as well as deepest reach of the author's art for after it he continued to repeat himself with varying effect and returned ultimately to that earlier method and manner which won him his public it was never the best public never the most critical and yet his work had friends of the most critical instincts and the most fastidious tastes who accepted him with reservation but without patronage a sense of his innate manliness forbade that and upon the whole he enjoyed while he lived a dignified popularity which since his death has not quite become fame yet his work is so very much better than that of novelists who in a time of inferior fiction did achieve remembrance that one resents for him the sort of unjust neglect which it has fallen into it was his fate or his accident to begin writing naturalistic fiction of the old-fashioned english kind and to establish himself as a lover of real life just before the violent campaign for naturalism began on the continent where almost nothing that was nice and almost everything that was nasty was accounted natural he continued writing in his own way amidst the impassioned struggle against romanticism in france spain and italy and remained no more affected by the polemics of m than by the perfection of flaubert or maupassant the great the matchless fiction of russia did not move him from his course and his constant english public stood by him while the more fitful favor of his american friends did not always fail him he saw the fall of the dickens worship and the rise of the thackeray doubt trollope outlived himself and george eliot died after the distinct decline of her too deeply ethicised art and there was a moment when william black might have been recognized as the leading writer of english fiction unless we are to count some novelists of finer skill and greater force in the american condition of english fiction but unhappily for his supremacy the vaster and deeper and fresher naturalism of mr thomas hardy began to make itself known and william black's chance was gone there was no later chance and he was left to end his career to the strains of the muted second violin which formed the saddest music in the world to the performer's ear three no writers could be more opposite in their realism than the novelist whom i have just named and black both are poets and both are apt to seek in nature the charm they make us feel but the final sense of the mystery and loveliness imparted by mr hardy is of something which his heroine confers upon her circumstance and in black's fiction it seems something which she derives from it i am now thinking chiefly of such a girl as gertrude white in macleod of dare who is as dependent upon society for means of self-expression as any heroine i know and yet is as genuine a personality as may be met in fiction she was recognized with an art which was perhaps at its best in her portrayal and she had a freshness which is now gone from her type she belongs to that social moment since satirised beyond recall when aesthetics began to be so generally received into society that society seemed to have become aesthetical in that instant of fine confusion the stage especially went into society so much that it might well appear that society had gone upon the stage and a brilliant and beautiful young actress like gertrude white meeting sir keith macleod at a fashionable house would never have suggested a theatre to the young highlander dropped down in london from his native isles but you have seen our elm our own elm said mrs ross who was arranging some azaleas that had just been sent her we are very proud of our elm gertrude will you take sir keith to see our noble elm he had almost forgotten who gertrude was but the next second he recognized the low and almost timid voice that said will you come this way then sir Keith?" he turned and found that it was miss white who spoke how was it that this girl who was only a girl seemed to do things so easily and gently and naturally without any trace of embarrassment or self-consciousness he followed her and knew not which to admire the more the careless simplicity of her manner or the singular symmetry of her tall and slender figure he had never seen any statue or any picture in any book to be compared with this woman who was so fine and rare and delicate that she seemed only a beautiful tall flower in this garden of flowers there was a strange simplicity too about her dress a plain tight-fitting tight-sleeved dress of unrelieved black her only adornment being some bands of big blue beads worn loosely round the neck the black figure in this shimmer of rose-pink and gold and flowers was effective enough but even the finest of pictures or the finest of statues has not the subtle attraction of a graceful carriage the cloud had never seen any woman walk as this woman walked in so stately and yet so simple a way from mrs ross's chief drawing-room they passed into an ante drawing-room which was partly a passage and partly a conservatory on the window-side were some rows of cape heaths look at this beautiful heath mrs ross is very proud of her heaths the small white fingers scarcely touched the beautiful blossoms of the plant but which were the more palely roseate and waxen if one were to grasp that hand in some sudden moment of entreaty in the sharp joy of reconciliation in the agony of farewell would it not be crushed like a frail flower this is our elm said she lightly mrs ross and i regard it as our own we have sketched it so often they had emerged from the conservatory into a small square room which was practically a continuation of the drawing-room but which was decorated in pale blue and silver and filled with a lot of knick-knacks that showed it was doubtless mrs ross's boudoir and out there in the clear june sunshine lay the broad green sward behind prince's gate with the one splendid elm spreading its broad branches into the blue sky and throwing a soft shadow on the corner of the gardens next to the house how sweet and still it was as still as the calm clear light in this girl's eyes there was no passion there and no trouble only the light of a june day and of blue skies and a peaceful soul she rested the tips of her fingers on a small rosewood table that stood by the window surely if a spirit ever lived in any table the wood of this table must have thrilled to its core macleod in his dreaming did not dream her an actress but because her very life was an art she was not less acting now than she was the night of the same day when he saw her on the stage in a comedy which had been a very stupid conventional play till she appeared suddenly his heart seemed to stand still altogether it was a light glad laugh the sound of a voice he knew that seemed to have pierced him as with a rifle ball and at the same moment from the green shimmer of foliage in the balcony there stepped into the glare of the hall a young girl with life and laughter and a merry carelessness in her face and eyes she threw her arm around her mother's neck and kissed her she bowed to the legal person she flung her garden hat on to a couch and got up on a chair to get fresh seed put in for her canary It was all done so simply and naturally and gracefully, that in an instant a fire of life and reality sprang into the whole of this sham thing. The woman was no longer a marionette, but the anguish-stricken mother of this gay and heedless girl, and when the daughter jumped down from the chair again, her canary on her finger, and when she came forward to pet and caress and remonstrate with her mother, and when the glare of the lights flashed on the merry eyes and on the white teeth and laughing lips there was no longer any doubt possible macleod's face was quite pale he took the programme from uh, agavee's hand and for a minute or two stared mechanically at the name of miss gertrude white printed on the pink-tinted paper again she is acting but neither more nor less consciously when macleod comes to luncheon and she makes the maid give her the salad to dress while the keen eyes of her young sister divine her and deride her There is no use making any pretense, said she sharply. You know quite well why you are making that salad dressing. Did you never see me make salad dressing before, said the other quite as sharply? You know it is simply because Sir Keith MacLeod is coming to lunch. I forgot all about it. Oh, and that's why you had the clean curtains put up yesterday? What else had this precocious brain ferreted out? yes and that's why you bought papa a new necktie continued the tormentor and then she added triumphantly but he hasn't put it on this morning ha gertie a calm and dignified silence is the best answer to the fiendishness of thirteen miss white went on with the making of the salad dressing she was considered very clever at it a smart young maid-servant very trimly dressed made her appearance sir keith Macleod, miss said she oh gurdy you're caught muttered the fiend but miss white was equal to the occasion the small white fingers plied the fork without a tremor ask him to step this way please she said and then the subtle imagination of this demon of thirteen jumped to another conclusion oh Gertie, you want to show him that you are a good housekeeper that you can make salad for it will be remembered that Macleod is instantly in love with Gertrude and has no thought but of marrying her and making her leave the stage he has found her in society intellectually inferior to her of course but rich and refined and delicately appreciative of such bric-a-brac as she and though he is a splendid young fellow with generous possibilities of lifelong adoration for the woman he loves he has no conception of the sacrifice she must make in giving up her career to be the wife of a highland chieftain on the wild scottish shore she has no conception of it either when she promises her selfish old father the collector of other bric-of-brac than she does not like the match and consents unwillingly that she shall leave the life for which he has had her so carefully trained and in which her success has so far been so brilliant i will beg you to remember gertie he remarked with some dignity that i did not make you an actress if that is what you imply if it had not been entirely your own wish i should never have encouraged you and i think it shows great ingratitude not only to me but to the public also that when you have succeeded in obtaining a position such as any woman in the country might envy you treat your good fortune with indifference and show nothing but discontent I cannot tell what has come over you of late. You ought certainly to be the last to say anything against a profession that has gained for you such a large share of public favor. Public favor, she said with a bitter laugh, who is the favorite of the public in this very town? Why, the girl that plays in that farce, who smokes a cigarette and walks round the stage like a man and dances a breakdown. Why, wasn't I taught to dance breakdowns? here what's more doubtless the girl is unconsciously acting and it is not till she has seen macleod on his native heath and among the clansmen to whom he is a demigod in a semi-feudal almost semi-barbarous environment that she is fully awakened to the reality she sees no beauty or grandeur in the life to which his love destines her as remorselessly as if it were hate and she finds that she cannot give up all that she has made herself in the world that seems to her great and worth winning she begins to pull at the leash which binds her and when she gets back to london she breaks with Macleod. then he ventures upon that wild that mad scheme of luring her aboard his yacht and carrying her off to the highlands to make her his wife against her will but not as he believes against her love you cannot go ashore Gertrude. he repeated we have already left "'Gertie, Gertie,' he continued, for she was struck dumb with a sudden terror, "'don't you understand now? I have stolen you away from yourself.' "'There was but the one thing left, the one way of saving you, and you will forgive me, Gertie, when you understand it all.' She was gradually recovering from her terror. She did understand it now, and he was not ill at all. "'Oh, you coward, you coward, you coward!' she exclaimed with a blaze of fury in her eyes." and i was to confer a kindness on you alas, kindness but you dare not do this thing i tell you you dare not do it i demand to be put on shore at once do you hear me she turned wildly round as if to seek for some way to escape the door of the lady's cabin stood open the daylight was streaming down into that cheerful little place there were some flowers on the dressing-table but the way by which she had descended was barred over and dark she faced him again and her eyes were full of fierce indignation and anger she drew herself up to her full height she overwhelmed him with taunts and reproaches and scorn that was a splendid piece of acting seeing that it had never been rehearsed he stood unmoved before all this theatrical rage oh yes you were proud of your name she was saying with bitter emphasis and i thought you belonged to a race of gentlemen to whom lying was unknown and you were no longer murderous and revengeful but you can take your revenge on a woman for all that and you asked me to come and see you because you are ill and you have laid a trap like a coward and if i am what you say gertie said he quite gently it is the love of you that has made me that oh you do not know she saw nothing of the lines that pain had written on this man's face she recognized nothing of the very majesty of grief in the hopeless eyes he was only her jailer her enemy of course of course said she it is the woman it is always the woman who is in fault that is a manly thing to put the blame on the woman and it is a manly thing to take your revenge on a woman i thought when a man had a rival that it was his rival whom he sought out but you you kept out of the way he strode forward and caught her by the wrist there was a look in his face that for a second terrified her into silence "Gerty," said he i warn you do not mention that man to me now or at any time or it will be bad for him and you she twisted her hand from his grasp how dare you come near me she cried as is well known the yacht is wrecked and they are drowned together and there is an implication that somehow macleod is a fine fellow and that gertrude white is not a good girl and has met a merited fate but i do not know why she is not a good girl the charge against her so far as it is made out is brought by her sister carrie who accuses her of flirting with macleod she certainly did nothing to prevent his loving her no doubt because she was in love with him but when she found that his love demanded more of her than she could give she did nothing worse than try to break her engagement under the circumstances that was the best thing to do and if she wished to break it gently and not roughly that was not proof of a bad heart in her but a good one she had the histrionic nature but that is not necessarily an insincere nature though it means the dangerous power of self-deception imaginably the subjective process of gertrude white's tragedy was the capacity of being charmed by what was new and picturesque in macleod and of not being sufficiently repelled by his latent race savagery which she latently feared she could figure the world and the mimic world well lost for love with him on the barren crag to which he invited her at the cost of all she had hitherto held dear but when she saw the barren crag she would over-realise the immense sacrifice demanded of her and her recoil would be the imperative mandate of what was the law of her being she could not change that law which was not an evil law though it set the artist instinct against the woman instinct and the lesson of her experience is not that you must not be an artist if you are a woman but that if you are a man in love with that kind of woman you must count upon her duplex instinct which is by no means duplicity if you offer her the fulfilment of one instinct you must leave her to fulfil the other and to demand its extirpation is stupid as well as cruel macleod of dare was both stupid and cruel though he was so fine and generous and brave if we consider the story of his love tragedy as something that simply happened through the war of his temperament with that of the woman he loved then it is a great tragedy of the quality of the greek destiny play but if we regard it as a morality it is weak and foolish unless it teaches that macleod was wrong and gertrude was right It is enough for a man to ask that a woman shall merge her woman life in his, and more than most men can fully justify a marriage, but that she shall lose her artist life too is asking something monstrous. Whenever they talk of this sacrifice, which MacLeod requires the girl, tries tenderly to make him understand how vital the sacrifice is, but she cannot. He remains the true, simple, masterful soul who thinks he is asking something wholly fit and proper for a husband to ask we have no hint of the author's feeling except so far as it may appear in his obvious fondness for Macleod and his willingness to depreciate gertrude white he does not weaken so far as to use thackeray's ironical method with her though he applies it now and then to her sarcastic little sister but he loses the greater opportunity in the less when he rejects the subjective for the objective tragedy it rings the reader's heart to have the heroine die with her lover, but it would be better than heartbreak for him if he could realize her living with the husband for whom she had given up too much. That would set him thinking, and though a reader does not like to think, it is often the best thing he can do. To feel is comparatively cheap and easy. End of section 34.